I am in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to begin at verse 1, and I'm going to go through verse 16, and there's going to be four things I want to tell you today before I leave. And so I hope you'll stick around for all four. I just thought that was funny. I didn't really expect a mass exodus, but you never know, you know. Um, Paul, and you, you may not remember this because it's easy for all of us to forget, but I told you when I started Romans, by the time we get to chapter 3, we should all be convinced that we're all sinners and that we all need a Savior. And Paul's going to make that very clear about three different groups. Number one, he's going to make it clear of the Gentiles. That's you and me. To my knowledge, all of us in this room are Gentiles. If you are a uh, completed Jew, I'd love to talk to you later. But Gentiles, you and me, we're, we're lost and need a Savior. Uh, he's going to make it clear of the Jews. In fact, a lot of people say all of chapter 2 is focused on the Jews. And that very well may be. I, I don't think that's an important doctrine on which we're going to argue if chapter 2 is about the Jews. But it could be, and it may be. But before we get to chapter 3, the Jews ought to know they're lost and they need a Savior. And then he's going to address moral people, good people. In fact, I think that's where a lot of us fit in. You know, we're Gentiles, so we're outside the promises and the covenants that God made with the Jews. But most of us, especially those of us who consider ourselves religious or spiritual, both of those terms are, are familiar to us. I think spiritual is growing in popularity. People may not say I'm religious, but they'll say I'm spiritual. And I think it is the tendency of all of us to look at ourselves as pretty good people. Pretty moral, pretty right, pretty trustworthy. We look at ourselves and we think, you know, everything's good. And here is one of the ways, sadly, that we could do that. We could compare ourselves to other people and say, well, compared to them. But now listen, it's always been the case. We shouldn't compare ourselves with other people. We should compare ourselves with Jesus. But when you and I look at others, the, 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 the temptation could be that we would pass judgment. We'll make judgment. We'll look at other folks and we'll make a judgment towards them. And, and this is what Romans is going to make clear. Not only do we have the responsibility, but I'm telling you, none of us have the right to judge others. And that's the first thing I want us to see of the four. Judge not. Judge not. Look at Romans chapter 2 and, and pick up at verse 1. The Bible says, therefore, now again, I know it's cheesy, the therefore is there for everything that was said in chapter 1. Now, that, that covered about four weeks of preaching, two weeks aside from that, dealing with one specific topic. We've had a guest preacher since I started in Romans. So if you've already forgotten what Romans chapter 1 is, go home. I know, I know you're not tired. You don't need a nap today. You got extra sleep last night. Isn't that a glorious thing? I'm telling you, but boy, it's going to be dark at 5 o'clock. You better have your phones charged up because it's going to feel like midnight about 5.15. So, uh, but go home and familiarize yourself with Romans chapter 1 again. The therefore here is for all of that. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, Practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? 
So my first thing is judge not. Don't judge. Now, this is not a call to ignore all of our abilities of observation. This is not a call for us to overlook our critical thinking. In fact, there are times in the church when you and I are called upon to rebuke those who may be in sin. So this is not a call for us to not observe in others things that are observable, but it is that you and I would also take an honest look at ourselves. We ought not judge others so quickly as we should judge ourselves. And, and I can illustrate this in a personal way. Have you renewed your driver's license lately? Because if you haven't, I'm going to tell you, if they're honest, they're going to look at you and say, is this your current weight? And the last time I renewed my driver's license, I had to come to grips with the fact that I no longer weighed what I'd been telling them I'd been weighing for years. And so I changed my weight, but can I tell you the truth? Because God already knows, I put a target weight down. <laughs> uh, it's more than what it was, but it's, it's, it's under where I am. So uh, God is my witness. He knows my heart. I really hope to get there and a little bit beyond. I'm not sure I'll see what I had said was the situation, but, you know, I want to work that way. Now, another way I've illustrated this is that it's fine for me to drive 10 miles over the speed limit, but by golly, if somebody passes me going 11 miles over the speed limit, I'll look at them in a judgmental spirit. And I'll say, you know, they have lost their mind. They're unsafe. I hope somebody pulls them over, but don't pull me over <laughs> Uh, and so Paul is just saying to the church, look, you, you need to be careful for judging others. It has been said, and I quote, the self-righteous, and that's really the issue. We all have a tendency to be a bit self-righteous. I'm quoting, the self-righteous make two grave errors. They underestimate the height of God's standard of righteousness, and they underestimate the depth of their own sin." Now, there's a lot of folks that do believe all of chapter 2 is Paul addressing the Jews. And that may very well be. But I'm telling you what, it speaks to me. Because I have that temptation to think of myself as awfully moral, awfully good. And I have a rather self-righteous opinion far too often. That's the first thing, judge not. But secondly, remember rightly the kindness of God. Remember rightly the kindness of God. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, Unrepentant is a way to read that. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Listen, God is kind, but he's not just kind towards you. His kindness toward you and me is not so that we can continue unkindness towards others. And his kindness is not so that you and I can continue in a life of sin and judgment of others. The Bible makes clear that God's kindness is meant, is intended to lead us to repentance. 
Matthew Henry, the old Bible teacher, preacher, said, There is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. That is that when you and I know something is sin, but we just go ahead and do it, that is a contempt for the goodness of God. And here's the thing I want to remind you of. Every single one of us, every single day, enjoys certain things about God. And Paul listed them here. We enjoy his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. And he uses a word. He said, do you presume on his riches? Now, the word presume means to look down upon something and, and to grow in a sense of contempt for it. Now, for me to wrap my little head around that concept, I have to understand it as enjoying something so long that I now take it for granted. And that is what I often do with God's kindness. I've enjoyed it so long, so frequently, so powerfully that I can take it for granted. Think about it this way. There are things in life you and I take for granted. Today, we just assume that when we walk in this building... There would be electrical lights, and we would have electricity. Now, this is going to blow the mind of some of you. There was a day when people didn't have electricity. I can't imagine. I'm not that old. Some of you are nodding, so you're aging yourself, but that's fine. I won't tell anybody who's nodding and who's not. But there was a day when people, you know, you, you watch TV, you watch shows, and you think, what are they lighting that lamp for? Ambiance? No, because they can't see. That's their light. There was a day, folks, when we didn't have air conditioning. Now, that's got a few more of you nodding your head because y'all remember those days. I can't imagine. I'm just telling you, thanks be to God for me being born when I was. You know, I'm grateful for air conditioning. I I'm convinced, well, anyway, I won't golf in that. But when I moved to Jordan, our apartment didn't have air conditioning. I was scared to death. It was 108 when we moved to Jordan. No air conditioning. And, and when I walked in and found out there's no AC, it wasn't even so much there wasn't air conditioning, but there was a part of me that just thought, don't they know I'm an American? Don't they know I got money I can pay for? It? Let's get one put in here. I, we shared a phone line with the landlady. We'd have to get on there and say, we're on the phone. Until I learned how to say in Arabic. I can't remember that anymore. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And, and today, today, the minute my power goes off, I'm on my cell phone with Arab Electric Co-op. Hey, my power's out. And Ashley, my sweet wife, grew up in a war zone. She'd go weeks without power. She'll look at me and say, well, precious, <laughs> you think you can make it five, ten minutes? I'm like, no, because it's summertime. That means no AC. Hello. I want the world to know I'm without power. I've gone with it so long, I just assume it's there, and I can take it for granted. I take Google for granted, y'all. I don't know how I ever made it through school. Some of y'all old enough to remember the card catalog. You'd have to go look up books. We had th My parents bought a set of Funkin' Wagnalls encyclopedias for me. You know what they'd be used for today? They'd be used to start a fire in my house today. What is the Funkin' Wagnalls doing? Starting a fire. I mean, it's great. It's the smartest fire in town. If I want to know anything, I'm Googling it. And there was a day without Wi-Fi. Can y'all remember living without Wi-Fi? That is so long ago. It's like the dark ages. Y'all remember? And recently we had an outage in Arab. 
And it stressed some of you, I know, because I saw on Facebook, anybody's Wi-Fi off? Anybody's Wi-Fi off? How about the cable? We can't watch TV. I mean, we take all this stuff for granted. We no longer appreciate it. And Paul is telling the church, we enjoy God's kindness every single day, and it'll get to the point where we don't appreciate it anymore. And he's not just kind so he can be kind. It has a purpose. His kindness is to lead us to repentance. We ought never presume upon the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience. The kindness of God is purposeful. One writer tells us about repentance, which means to turn. It means to go away from. One writer said... Repentance is to leave the sin we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. That's what repentance is. I'm telling you, it's not enough just to say, I'm sorry, God. It's not enough just to say, help me, Lord. Repentance means we are turning away, genuinely leaving that sin. And why would we ever do that? Because God has poured out his kindness on it. On us, and it is meant to lead us to repentance. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about repentance. He explained, and I'm quoting, it seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still impenitent and finds himself out of hell, the sunlight seems to say, I shine on thee yet another day, is that in this day thou mayest repent. When your bed receives you at night, I think it seems to say, I will give you another night's rest that you may live to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Every mouthful of bread that comes to the table says, I have to support your body that still you may have space for repentance. Spurgeon said, every time you open the Bible, the pages say, we speak with you that you may repent. Every time you hear a sermon, if it be such a sermon as God would have us preach, it pleads with you to turn unto the Lord and live. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Why? Because there's no salvation without repentance. John the Baptist came preaching and he said, hey, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, by golly, Jesus showed up. And guess what he said? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is no salvation without repentance. And it is God's kindness that calls to us. The old Puritan Thomas Manton said, whoever delays his repentance does, in effect, pawn his soul with the devil. Remember God's kindness rightly. It's to lead to repentance. Thirdly, we can't neglect good works. Now, some of your, your antenna just went up. We're going to talk about works. What about works? Look at verse 6. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. That, that speaks to the heart. It's searching for glory, for honor, and immortality. You hang on to that. He will give eternal life. Look at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now listen to me closely. When it comes to works, salvation does not prescribe works. 
But salvation always produces works. The prescription for salvation is that you and I come by God's grace and our faith. That the Holy Spirit working in such a way that you and I realize His grace. That we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves. Then we must take our step of faith towards God. Our salvation is not earned. It is never deserved. It cannot be purchased. It is free. It is free. It is free. How much is it? And it comes by faith, by faith, by faith. The requirement is faith, but the results will be works. And when you and I stand before the Lord, he will want to see and know what we did with his name, with our salvation. Twice in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself said, Matthew 7, verse 16 and 20, you'll know them by their fruit. What's he talking about? The fruit of our salvation, the fruit of his presence within us, the fruit of our salvation by grace through faith. You and I must do good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You know it. You've heard it. You may not know the address, but there Paul writing to the church at Ephesus said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. You want to know why I say that a lot in my sermons? Because that's a big deal. It is by grace we're saved. We will never earn it. We will never deserve it. And as I said a moment ago, we cannot purchase it. It is by God's grace that you and I are saved, but it comes by our personal saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8. Look again. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So don't misunderstand this. We'll never work our way to salvation. It is by grace we're saved through faith, not of our own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you and I could ever work enough to earn our salvation, some of us would work ourselves nearly to death. But with our dying breath, we'd brag about it. And so you and I cannot work our way into heaven. For, verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're to walk in the good works that reflect what Jesus has done in us. The, the New Testament scholar Robert Mounts said, and I quote, Paul was not teaching how we are made right with God, but how God judges the reality of our faith. Faith is not an abstract quality that can be validated by some spiritual test unrelated to life. God judges our faith by the difference it makes in how a person actually lives. See, you and I are to reflect that. And so you, you remember what I said he talked about in this passage, those that seek glory and honor and immortality. That's not our own glory. That's not our own honor. We don't work for that. We don't do good works for that. It is so that we can give glory to God, so that we can honor God because of the immortality we've gotten through Christ's salvation. To those, to us, is given eternal life. But there's another group. He described them as self-seeking. They do not honor or obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness. And he said clearly, they face wrath. They face fury. Now, I'm about to give you a short sermon within a long sermon. Some of y'all are excited about that, aren't you? Finally, a short sermon. Here you go. You ready? Save people act saved. Save people do save people stuff. 
That's just how it is. We produce the fruit of salvation. That's point number three. How many points today? Seeing if y'all are listening, the 12 of you that are, warm my heart. Here's the last one. I got to start writing down what time I'm supposed to quit. Remind me to do that. Uh, Beware of religion because a relationship is required. Beware of religion. A relationship is required. Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, this is clear he's talking about the Jews. They have the law. Therefore, they're going to be judged on that standard. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The doing aspect that we just looked at. That's what the Lord's going to look at. What have we done? Look at verse 14, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's walk through this. Verse 11 is key. God shows no partiality. The word partiality in the Greek literally means face-taking. Face-taking. It was the idea that you would look at someone before you decide how to treat them. You may judge based on their appearance. You may judge based on how they act. But the idea is that you would show favor to some over others, face-taking. And Paul says, this is something that God never does. But you know what? I do it every single day. Not, Not just towards people. I do it on trivial things. I've got my favorite coffee cup that I drink my coffee of out of every single morning. And if I ever leave that coffee cup in my office or in my car, whew, it's a rough day. Why? Because it's my favorite coffee cup. Judge me if you will. I've got the way I fix it. I like the way it feels in my hand. I'll go so far as to be so weird to tell you, it just feels good drinking out of it. It's my favorite cup. I can do another one, but I'm not going to enjoy it. Okay? I show partiality towards the coffee cups that are in my cabinet. I have a favorite kind of cracker. How ridiculous is that? I mean, you're thinking, who does that? The preacher at Gillum. I got my favorite kind of cracker. You say, what's the big deal? Because I put my favorite pimento cheese on that cracker. And I got favorite crackers. I got favorite pimento cheese. I I got favorite restaurants. And when I go to those favorite restaurants, guess what I get? My favorite food. (laughs) I show partiality all the time. And I will look down on one thing rather than another. I will choose one thing over another because I'm wired to show partiality. Guess who is not wired that way? God shows no partiality. 
When he looks at you and he looks at me, he sees someone created in his image who has value and worth. But also he sees someone who is a sinner and needs a savior. And therefore he sees someone who's in need of what his son Jesus did on the cross for them. But he will look at us across the board and not show any partiality. And so for the Jews, they thought, we're God's people. We've got his law, we've got his covenants, we're the chosen ones. But I tell you what, it matters not where you've been born. Matters not what race you are, what language you learned growing up. It doesn't matter, rich or poor, tall or short. It matters not your financial means or whatever you think is going to gain God's favor. Regardless of whether we have the law or we don't, God shows no partiality. I heard, a fella, I heard about a fellow who got pulled over by a police officer. He said, you're speeding. Show me your, uh, show me your driver's license. He handed him his driver's license, and, and the policeman said, well, this says you're supposed to have corrective lenses. And the guy said, I got contacts. He said, I don't care who you know. You're getting a ticket. <laughs> I love that joke. I love it. You can kind of feel it. It's moving back, and they're going to get it back there in just a minute. Balcony, you'll erupt any minute now. I just know you will. Don't know. Anyway. Listen, God doesn't show partiality because here's what verse 12 says. For all who've sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That, that's simply a way of saying all are guilty. Those without the law will not be judged based on the law. But those who have the law will be judged based on the law. What's the big deal? The Jews are the ones who had the law. Thus, they are judged on the fact that they had the law. They knew God's standards. They knew God's expectations. They're going to be judged based on that. All of us Gentiles didn't have the law. So we're not going to be based on the law. But here's the reality that Paul's trying to make clear. We are all sinners and we all need a Savior. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. God's going to look at us all the same. And look at what, um, or rather listen to what Helmut Thielich, a German theologian, said. This is good. He said, a salty pagan full of the juices of life is a hundred times dearer to God and also far more attractive to men than a scribe who knows his Bible in whom none of this results in repentance, action, and above all, death of self. A terrible curse hangs over the know-it-all who does nothing. A.W. Tozer, a bit more relevant to some of us perhaps, says we modern Christians are long on talk and short on conduct. It is easier to pray, Lord, help me to carry my cross daily than to pick up the cross and carry it. Jamie Pruitt said when it comes to God's law, internal awareness is never as powerful as external activity. We're going to be based on our sin. 
Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Y'all know one of the greatest questions and also criticisms of Christianity is what about those who haven't heard? Some people will say, I'll never be a Christian because your God sends innocent people to hell. Other people will say, trying to understand, what about those who haven't heard? What about those where there is no church? What about those who've never heard the gospel? And the Bible here makes clear, it's written on our hearts. None of us are without excuse. We're punished because we're sinners. And everyone has written on their hearts the moral law of God. There's a testimony from Marilyn Laszlo. She dedicated her life to the Hauna people of New Guinea, and her goal was to translate Scripture into their language. She moved there, she immersed herself in culture and language, and she began to work on the Bible translation. She came to the word sin. How do I communicate this in their language? So she began to talk to some of those folks and describe for them, what is sin? How would you translate this? How would you know what sin is? And without ever hearing God's law, they said, that sounds like when somebody steals from you. That sounds like when somebody lies to you. That's what it is when somebody kills another. That's when somebody takes another man's wife. That's what sin is. And she said that had never been explained to them, but they knew it because It's as if God stamped on all of our hearts his moral law. We know what's good. We know what's right. We know right from wrong. Therefore, we are without excuse. And so verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, the day will come when we will answer to the Lord. We will be judged. What are we going to be judged on? Content of our heart? Yes. Content of our heart. Is Christ Lord? It's never enough to just look good. 1936, the Queen Mary was commissioned. One writer said of the Queen Mary that day that this is the most awe-inspiring ship to have ever been constructed. And she is beautiful. And in that day, she was quite large. She carried 1,957 passengers, and she had a crew of 1,174. When World War II came, she was converted to a troop ship. And in World War II, the Queen Mary carried 765,429 members of the military back and forth to the theater. Back and forth. She was decommissioned in 1967. She had made 1,001 sailings across the Atlantic. And she was taken to Long Beach, California. And some of you may have been there and may have been on that ship, stayed in that ship. But as a part of her being moved there and set up as a hotel and a destination, a refurbishment took place. And when they removed those three huge smokestacks, which had been painted at least 30 times in the ship's life. 
When they removed those smokestacks to refurbish them, they disconnected them from the ship and a crane moved them over to the pier. And when the smokestacks were laid down, they absolutely crumbled. Those 30 coats of paint were holding together a bunch of nothing. The one-inch steel that they had been made out of had rusted and decayed from the water, from the steam, from the heat, from the salt. And they found that all that was there was a beautiful facade. And see, one day when you and I stand before the Lord, we better make sure there's more to us than just a lovely facade. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your kindness, which leads to repentance. It is perhaps that someone here today needs to be reminded of your kindness because they've been guilty of judging others. Perhaps... Your kindness would lead to repentance for those who have either been trying to earn their salvation by works, but in their salvation they are not working. It may be that someone here today is far more concerned about their outward appearance than the inner reality. And so for those reasons today, we say thank you for your kindness, which is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, it is never my responsibility, Lord, as you well know, to drag someone kicking and screaming to repentance. But by your word and your Holy Spirit, perhaps you would touch the heart of someone today who needs to repent. It may be that someone has never come to the place where they understand your grace and they come by faith to trust you as Lord and Savior. And I pray you would speak to them clearly today, Lord. It may be that some who know you are guilty of these things which Paul addressed. They're guilty of judging. They're guilty of not working or working for the wrong reason, and they're guilty of just trusting in a facade that looks good to them. Bring us to repentance, Lord, I pray. By your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.